0: Okay, you have given me authority to begin my portion of the the assignment, haven't you? Thank you very much. Here we are, July the 21st, 2019, lecture discussion number 71 on the book of Romans. No, not the book of Romans. Who's in trouble here? Is that amazing? On the book of Joel. Wow. Let me explain this. I can't explain it. Last night, I had... uh, Atrial fibrillation episodes, maybe a dozen, certainly more than more than six. Between six and twelve, I have an alarm system. This guy goes off for me, and he was going off so many times, I finally said, OK, I've got to deal with this. What I mean, what happened to me, what's happening to me, on Friday, I went into atrial fibrillation for about 20 minutes. And I did what's called self-convert, but I did not not quite. That's incorrect. Christopher will correct me. I had a I had an accessory. What's it called? An aided conversion, right? Is that what you told me? Medication conversion. So I took I took my pill, which is uh, I have a whole package now. Where is my pill? I have so many things here to keep track of after the service come up and talk to me, I'll explain. Every single pill I'm fascinated by it. I really am not. But I have uh, a deltism, which is a calcium blocker that doesn't convert the afib back to its natural or, or its uh, nasal rhythm, but it uh, does keep the heart from going into uh, a, uh, a high level of activity. So finally, I took that immediately on Friday, and after about 20 minutes, I converted back to, a, to normalcy, which, as you know, is a relative term for me. But yesterday, we went, to, we watched the news, and I was exhausted from the day before, and I started having a fibrillation episodes from two in the morning all the way till eight in the morning when I just got up because I couldn't deal with it anymore. And I would convert just before I have the pill in my hand. I had the pill in my mouth one time, and I converted down to 70 beats a minute. I went from 151, 170. I got up to 180. And I describe it. It is not debilitating, but it's emotionally draining. It's really hard on you. The people that have this condition, I've read many of your stories. They're heartbreaking. Uh, it is uh, very difficult uh, Situation for for anyone to deal with, and I'm right there with them. I can find myself in many people. I can read their accounts and go, "That's exactly me." This one, this one, this one are me. Elderly man, uh, uh, having uh, just having this uh, since my goodness, since June. Now I've had four episodes that required conversion, serious conversion. Then I've had at least half dozen to a dozen of minor ones that would convert uh, by my, I would individually convert every uh, 15 to 20 seconds. So I'm in this wild ride, uh, not knowing when it's gonna get worse. Finally at eight in the morning, I took the, uh, the calcium blocker because I just gave up uh, and then I stood up. I've discovered one of the triggers is when I lay down AFib people do not sleep on their left side because it almost always triggers this result. So really difficult. I'm exhausted. It's like I describe it as running a marathon while you're in a fist fight with George Foreman. That dates me. I could have said Mike Tyson. That would also date me. And I don't know anybody after that. Uh, Lennox Lewis, maybe. So obviously when I wrote this, I wrote Romans instead of Joel. That's uh, first time I noticed that. It affects you emotionally, it affects my cognitive, my uh, cognitive capabilities, my acuity, and physically it's just a, a horrific event when it goes that long. So not getting better. I have, a, I have a, an appointment to see the cardiologist, actually the electrical physiologist, electrophysiologist uh, who's a cardiologist. He just deals with this kind of disease or condition with regard to whether or not I have a regurgitant valve. If I do, then that's worse news, so we'll see how that goes for me. It's bad enough as it is, as it sits now, but if if the valve is causing it, well, that's horrific. (sighs) Okay, as is enough of that. As is the usual, many questions that, (coughs) excuse me, there's many questions that have arisen and they're remaining. And whenever you're dealing with the Bible, resolution is a challenge as it pertains to Scripture. You will not find very many times where you can say, I have resolved this passage. In fact, I'm going to tell you that you'll never find resolution to a single passage. You'll get high percentages, maybe. I doubt that. We'll find out just exactly how bad we are at this when he brings us forward, right? And that's exactly what we should expect. If the Word of God were to be simple, I want you to contemplate the implications of that. If the Bible was simple, like cat in the hat, what's the implication of that? People ask me all the time, why is it so hard to figure out what this Bible says? Well, if it weren't, and when I talk about difficult, I'm talking about the, the, the depth of it. Not, the, not just the, the jewels or the treasures on the surface, they're there, you can go around It's like the White House Easter egg hunt. You can find those. He gives it to you. But then he says, You have been children, babies, long enough. It's time to be teachers. And so begin to look for it. And people come to me, uh, many, many do. I just can't find anything. I don't want to put the effort in. Well, I have bad news for you. There is an accounting. And again, if it were a simple book, as so many churches make it out to be, never tell you anything beyond the very simple. How long will you love the simple is a rebuke in Proverbs sorry, for the church. What would result from that? What would the accusers accuse God of if this book was uh, something obviously written by a junior high boy? Jesus Christ is the Lord God Almighty. Another one of his names is that he is the Word of God. He actually says, I am the Word. And he's the Word of God made flesh, John 1. And the Word of God, which is the Scripture also. There is layers to the phrase, Word of God. The Word of God, therefore, must be, this must be what? If Jesus Christ calls himself this, what is this then? It must be infinite because Christ is infinite. And, and I submit that you can't dispute this. It's without controversy. The Bible is absolutely incredible. It's ridiculously incredible. If Just take the interconnectivity alone. Just set that aside, if you will. Ignore the prophecies there. Ignore the descriptions of the expanding universe. You have a book that, that thousands of years ago described the expanding of the universe that we couldn't figure out until Hubble lucked into it with Doppler and red-shifted light, blue-shifted light. What book did that? And you have the genesis revealing of consciousness. We have no one today that can explain consciousness. We have no idea what it is. And the Bible explains it. We can describe it. We can't articulate its origin, except uh, theologically, which is exactly what he expected. But he tells us where it came from, how it, came, how it works, and the, and the complements, the existence, and the will that is entangled with consciousness Take all that out and just look at the mathematics of how interlinking it is. It's impossible, mathematically impossible, for a book to do what the Bible does. It's unimaginable. And back to where we began now. Each time you think that you have established or listed all of the scriptures, so you read a scripture today, good for you, And then you said, I'm going to make a list of all the scriptures that connect to that scripture. What are you going to need? A bigger boat. You're going to need a much bigger dry erase board. This one isn't going to cut it. You will be stunned. How many verses fit one? As you begin to chase the string, if you will. The string just keeps going and going. Just one verse, more, you get one verse and it just pours out of his book. Of course it would. Knowing the truth, that truth, just that one, the interconnectivity of this book, that's invaluable. It cannot be sold or purchased. It's beyond cost. Which brings me to a question, since I'm going to... (laughs) <laughs> Take medicine, which isn't really medicine anymore. But I have to pretend because we need the revenue stream from Coca-Cola. I don't want to violate our agreement that they don't know we have. Yes. Uh, you want to talk about the concept of zero? Do you know when the concept of zero became when we decided there was a zero? Zero. Yeah, that would take a few minutes. Okay, an hour and a half. They didn't have zero for the longest time. Did you know that? The gentleman decided, we need zero. He thought of zero. He thought of nothing. He's famous. There's a chance for me. That's what I'm trying to say. But this is an invaluable, and that's where I'm at. Let me just do this for a second. Invaluable. Invaluable means what? Inflammable. What does that mean? Invaluable means? No, it doesn't. It means valuable. Yeah, it's invaluable. Inflammable means what? It's flammable. It really does. The trucks on the side of them say inflammable. They're not carrying milk. Now, I want you to explain that to me, because, you know, inconclusive means non-conclusive. You know, incomplete, not complete, inordinate, not ordinate. Somehow, that does not mean not flammable. It comes from inflame. Know? I might have an extra M, but I'm not sure. But it comes from inflame, if I did add an extra M for you on the Internet, it's because I'm mentally impaired today, and you must give me mercy. Invaluable. Explain that one to me. Anyway. Last week an English teacher came and that was for her. Notice she didn't come back. Last Sunday I attempted to elucidate this extraordinary attribute of scripture. How you take one verse and you just go in all kinds of directions. You accumulate all of this information. I tried to... Uh, again, uh, put this into some kind of gripping mechanism for you with respect to the boy possessed by the death, mute, unclean spirit, which was Mark 9:14 through 29, Matthew 17:14 through 21, and Luke 9:37 through 42. A father brings his boy to Christ because he is despondent. His boy is thrashing about. His boy is possessed by a death mute unclean spirit there's a whole bunch of obvious questions there what's the first one how did the deaf, mute unclean spirit get in the boy why did the unclean deaf mute spirit get into the boy why did he choose this particular boy who's the father of this boy just to start how did the unclean spirit become unclean? Where are we now? Ezekiel 28:16. I should add that the unclean spirit, demon, fallen angel was not in himself either deaf or mute. His presence inside the boy placed the boy into that condition. So, another question automatically. It was the fallen angel's assignment to cause this. Why did he do it? And now, here comes just the deluge of questions. Explode. This is the upside the head part of the scripture. If you're not being hit upside the head when you read the Bible, you're not doing good. I don't want to insult you. Okay, maybe a little bit. And you're going to begin now with the messianic sign of David, because this angel knows the messianic sign of David. He knows the Davidic covenant, and this is Matthew 12:22 through 23. So I got a one boy, and now I've got the messianic sign of David. I have Christ entering Jerusalem removing these deaf-mute spirits because only the Messiah can do this and the spirits know it and Christ knows it because Christ is who omniscient God the spirits obviously don't know that Christ is uh, omniscient God if they did know he was omniscient God they would not enter these boys or this boy or anybody else so now you have to investigate that you understand? I hope you do. I've covered this before. There's a naming requirement in order to cast out for a rabbi or for an Orthodox Jewish <coughs> excuse me, priest to cast out a deaf-mute spirit, a, that is co- a spirit that is causing deaf-mute condition. You have to say the name. You can't ask the name because the boy, in this case, or any other demoniac, can't speak, so you can never learn the name. I always ask, why can't he write it? Well, he's thrashing about. You can't get the name of the Spirit. There's a naming requirement. I'm talking about naming. So, so far I've got a boy. I've got a father. I've got all the scriptures with regard to David. I've got um, the the covenant of David, this messianic sign. I've got demons that are fallen. i got to figure out all those verses. Find out why they're doing what they're doing. And then I have Christ casting them out. Christ knows their name. Does that make sense? I hope so. He doesn't need to find out their name. He knows it already. They didn't know that. That's an indication now that ties you into Matthew 4, doesn't it? How much did they know about Christ? They didn't know enough to know that Christ knew who they were, every single one of them. How come Christ knows every single angel's name besides being omniscient? That's that's the easy way out. How does Christ know the name of every single fallen demon? For that matter, every single angel. Because he's the creator of them. And he's good at remembering. He's the rememberer. He named every angel. He named that angel that he's going to cast out. He doesn't need to ask them their name. He knows it. And he's also so powerful they can't resist him. He's the word of God. So where am I now? I'm at Adam. Adam. I got naming. Let's put naming up here. What am I doing? I'm going to Adam. How come I'm going to Adam? Because somebody named every single angel and somebody else named every single animal. So once again, Christ and Adam are together. And I haven't even started. All I got is a boy in a deaf-mute condition with a demon. I haven't even come close. That's what your Bible does to you. And, and if it didn't do that, again, the accusations that it was not God would be, would be trumpeted more than they are today. I have David involved in this. If I've got David involved in this, I also have the sign of Jonah involved in this. How many lectures did I do on the sign of Jonah? Because of Matthew twelve thirty-eight through 42 and Matthew twelve forty-three uh, through 45. The Pharisees come to Christ after he performs this Davidic sign and ask for another sign. And he says, I won't give you another sign. I gave you this Davidic one. I named the angels. Okay. I gave you that. That means I created them. I'm not going to give you anything else except the sign of Jonah. So now I've got the whole book of Jonah connected to the demon boy. The demon mute insight or the mute deaf condition of a boy possessed by a demon. And we've done enough on the sign of Jonah, hopefully, to bring some awareness to its scope because it's not just Jonah, right? It's Jonah and it's Adam and it's Lazarus and it's Christ. This is the first, I mean, this is the sign of Jonah, but these are also signs of Jonah. Some people eliminate Adam, but I don't think you can do that. I covered that a little bit last week. So I have all of those uh, elements now. And again, I am still stuck on one verse. Christ is called by the masses when he walks in. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the son of David? That's what they wanted to know. Why did they want to know that? Because they understood that if you cast out a spirit that is causing a deaf-mute condition, you have to be the Messiah. The angels, again, did not know he was God. He proves it to them in Matthew 4, and he proves it to them when uh, when he is confronted, when the Pharisees, the Pharisees were confident, and the people were stunned. They marveled. They fell down. He's done something that no one else has ever done. He must be the Messiah. So again, how much have I just brought up with you? Because I've got to mesh the sign of Jonah with the casting out of the deaf, mute, unclean demon. How is it that the sign of Jonah does in fact mesh with the casting out of the deaf, mute, unclean demons? Last Sunday's lecture, number 70. Book of Joel. Let me make sure. Yep. Book of Joel. I threw in a question about King David. He's the shepherd boy at this time. He's facing Goliath. Reasonably formidable. Formidable. We don't know how large Goliath is. There's estimates anywhere from 8 to 15 feet. His weight would be anywhere from 800 to 1500 pounds probably. David is a shepherd Christ is a shepherd so I have the shepherd king David and I have the shepherd king Christ why does Christ call himself a shepherd because he does well I'm doing a lot better than I thought are you following me Am am I doing good on yours too you're not paying attention are you doctor Yeah, I'm doing good, huh? How's the sermon going? Terrible? Yeah. I have an excuse. I am cognitively impaired today. How's that different from all the other days? I know. Why did King David, actually he's shepherd boy David, why did David keep the armor of Goliath? Did you ever ask that? Because he does. He cuts the head of Goliath off with Goliath's sword how heavy is Goliath's sword i got a boy here that's got a sling what i asked last week uh, what is the feet per second velocity of that stone to go through that that helmet and penetrate the skull and stick in the skull of Goliath and render him unable to defend himself he's not dead the shepherd boy picks up his sword what do you think the sword weighs 150 pounds, go, go look it up, do the math. And he cuts his head off. How easy is that? Not easy. How did he get a projectile? I'll estimate it could be anywhere from 5,000 feet per second to 10,000 feet per second. To go through that armor. A rock, it's a rock. And the rock does not break apart when it hits the helmet. So it goes all the way through. And sticks in his forehead. How did that happen? So you got to answer that question so that you can answer what? Why the demoniac is inside the, the kid and makes him deaf-mute. But why did David, he cuts the head off, he takes the head to Jerusalem and he buries it. We all know that and we all know why, I hope. But why did he keep the armor of Goliath in his tent? 1 Samuel 17, 51 through 54. How long did it take him to haul? First he's got to take the armor off Goliath. Now, the Philistines, they take off running. The Israelis, they chase them uh, because Goliath is dead. And what's David doing? He's cutting the guy's head off. That's cool. And then what is he doing? He's, He's undressing him. He's got this huge monster of a human being, Nephilimic, frankly. And he's taking his armor. Does he have a forklift? How much weight does he have here? And he's taking it to his tent. Where's his tent? How far away is it? Forget all of that. Those are fun questions. Why did he take the armor? What does it mean? We can figure out again why David buried the skull of Goliath. He buried the skull of Goliath on Gal Goliathah, which is Golgotha. That's where he buried it. He buried it on the exact spot that Christ chose to be crucified. So Christ puts himself on top of the skull of Goliath. That's the in the midst of the tree of life that we covered last week. The in the midst of the crucifixion. The, word, the wooden cross of Jesus. Obviously, those two elements are correspondent. I have the skull and the cross. But if I have the skull and the cross, just to solve the, demiac, the son of the father who's possessed, the boy. If I solve the son and the cross, well, the cross takes me to the tree of life. I gotta compare the tree of life to the cross. Therefore the tree of life by the transitive property has to be compared to the what? The skull. How does the tree of life compare to the skull? Why is the tree of life on top of the skull? Is the question. We know it is. Some people tie it to Genesis three fifteen. Look it up. Again, there's another verse. Have fun. Bring lunch. Back to this simple question. Why did David keep the armor? Going to sell it? Who's going to buy it? i got size, my goodness, 50 extra large, 50 X's. It weighs maybe a thousand pounds. I don't know. I don't have it at home. Lori would be worried that I would try to find it and bring it home and put it in the living room. But why did he have that? Can't sell it. Is it a testimony that he killed Goliath? Well, he just has to have his sword for that. I could see him dragging the sword back. He's taking the armor. You want to keep somebody else from getting the armor? How long did it take him to get the armor? Do you have friends help him? So how do I solve that? How do I get from David to the boy through the armor? Where else do I go? The first thing I ask is, who else put captured item in a tent in the Bible? Who else did put captured items in a tent? Well, I have Achan. Joshua 7, 10 through 26. Achan's a story where Achan is obviously a commander. He's probably a high-ranking officer in the Israeli army. He decides it might be a general level. He stole some of the devoted things of God. Your translations, uh, when I say yours, I mean the Internet, because you probably are following along. I hope you are. Likely say accursed things in Joshua 7. That is a mistranslation. It's literally devoted. So these are obviously things that are devoted to God. It means to set apart. They're the devoted things or the set apart things. And God said, they're mine. Don't take them. Achan stole them and hid them in his tent. Things that God specifically separated out as belonging to him alone, Achan stole them. And hiding and stealing from the omniscient God is impracticable at best. It's futile. How do you hide from omniscience? What are you doing? Achan hid. This is what he got. He got a beautiful Babylonian garment. So described by scripture. God's word describes this garment That is somehow attached to the boy that is infested by the demon so that he is a deaf mute. Achan hits this beautiful Babylonian garment. And scripture defines it as beautiful. He also gets some silver and gold. And as a consequence, 36 men... And I'm going to say they're under the command of Aiken. I think I can prove that. I've done it in the past. It's on the Internet somewhere. If you can't find it, it's not my fault. Whose fault is it? That's right, Dave's. If he exists. People say they saw him walk into the, into the scope of the camera last week. They saw somebody. There's no evidence DNA-wise that that's supper day. Because first you have to prove he exists before that can be him. I mean, you're jumping. You know, that's a logical error. You have a, past, a pathway here. If you haven't proved his existence, where are we? 36 of Aiken, General Aiken's command men were slain in the first attack of I, And that is astan- astonishing. It's Ai. I'll put that on the board. This beautiful garment is in this town. It's not in Babylon. It got here, essentially in Canaan. How did it get here? And Achan hid this garment, so described as Scripture, in his tent. And because of that, 36 of his soldiers were killed in this attack. And keep in mind, that's an anomaly. Israelite soldiers do not get killed in these battles. Look it up, Joshua 1025 10, 1021. 10, but these thirty-six died under the command of Achan inside the command of Joshua. So how did thirty six die when they don't normally die? And why these thirty six? Who are the thirty six? What does thirty six mean? It's a three and a six. What is that? A six times six? The point is, yea, finally a point. The 36 slain men were obviously part of and intent on capturing the beautiful Babylonian garment. The gold and the silver, in my view, were just accessorated accessories. The gold and silver are subordinate, not the intended target. They were after this beautiful garment. This was a coordinated theft. Some people will think that it's happenstance, and I just don't believe that that's the case doesn't make sense that way to me. It's planned. And there's an effort to steal and hide God's beautiful garment. I see that in the rest of the narrative. And this garment had been once in the hands of the Babylonians. So whose hand would it have been in? It's before Nebuchadnezzar, your only choice really is Nimrod. So why did Nimrod have this beautiful garment? That is God's garment. And why did Achan and his accomplices, his co-conspirators, seek the garment? How did they know where it was, what it was? What does this have to do with, again, Genesis 3, even David? Uh-oh, I just added Genesis 3, even David. And I still haven't solved why that demon is inside that boy. Well, a little bit. Both David hid the armor of Goliath and Achan hid the garment of God in their tent. Both hide something, keeping something in a tent. Is, is David trying to hide the, the armor of Goliath from God? Would that make any sense? And I've done Joshua 7 before years ago. It may be somewhere on the internet. Again, if you can't find it, who do we blame? If he exists. I'm gesturing this way, not because he's over here. I wouldn't make that mistake. I'm just left-handed. I happen to hit right, and play pull right, shoot right, throw right. But this particular time, I'm left-handed. Anyway, obviously the beautiful garment that God himself, in the sense it's in his scripture, and it's in the word of God, he defines it as beautiful. If it wasn't beautiful as he defines it, he wouldn't have put it in. The Holy Spirit would have written it in a different way through the agency that they used. Joshua in this case, and obviously again, this beautiful garment is of particular significance. Garments are symbols of what? Coverings. Jesus has His own covering. Revelation one thirteen. You should read about His covering. He has one. Isaiah six one describes it as well. Note that I threw in a Revelation one thirteen reference because why? That's the subject today. I know it's amazing. How I, the highly trained religious professional, can maneuver a boy possessed by a demoniac, deaf, mute condition. I can get it to David, Achan, and Eve. How do I get it to Eve? I got David and Achan. That makes sense. But I'm throwing in Eve here because they're attached. That's why. That's how I do it. Armor, Romans 13, 12. Armor is a symbol. It is the armor of light that casts off darkness. So God has an armor. And David obviously had the armor of light on him when he attacked Goliath. But he wanted that other armor. There's armor of light that casts off darkness. Think about what that means. Goliath's armor, therefore, is the armor of who? It's the armor of darkness. He's an antichrist figure. That's why his skull is buried under that cross. His armor is the armor of evil, the armor of darkness. And again, it had no value when the shepherd king somehow gets a a rock to go 10,000 feet per second. That is obviously a supernatural condition, isn't it? Cuts its head off with a sword the size of, my goodness, it's probably at least seven, eight feet long. Why would Achan put the beautiful garment in his tent and David keep the armor of evil? Aven never going to wear it. He's never going to sell it to somebody that can wear it. So why does he want armor of darkness when he's not? So there are clues here all over the place. And here, looky here. Here's one. Joshua seven twenty twenty one. The confession of Achan. Achan... <coughs> Excuse me. Achan confesses. It's amazing. He steals the... Beautiful garment and the gold and the silver, and he confesses. He says this, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. I should probably stop here. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Achan confessed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Achan confessed. Just saying, before anyone leaps to the conclusion about his destiny, you should notice his confession. He is executed. Thirty-six of his men are killed. There's uh, some people believe that his daughters were killed. I don't think the scripture says that. I think "them" refers to the thirty-six and not to the daughters. Sins of the father. Achan confessed. I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And he did it because someone begged him to do it. Who begged him to do it? I'll help you. Joshua did. The, if you wish to think of him this way, the Eisenhower of Israel. Joshua and Christ have the exact same name, it means salvation. Why would Joshua, a type of Christ, beg, implore a condemned man who's going to be stoned to death to confess his sins? I think it's obvious. Read the account slowly and carefully. What is learned by Joshua's portrayal of Christ here? Because Joshua and Christ are connected together. He begs this man to confess and the man confessed. Okay, got all of that? All I'm trying to do is tell you that if you study that boy, you're going to go all over the place, just like everything else. And you should take great comfort in that. That's because there is no other book that does this, much less explain astrophysics and existence, language, will. Okay, where was I? Where am I going? Who can know? Maybe the shadow, maybe not. Don't know for sure. Obviously, outside of time, omniscient God. Did you ever, have you ever thought about why Christ, who is timeless, he's the timeless one, the one in whom all of time consists, in whom time is contained. This is Jesus Christ. He was really difficult to capture. The Pharisees tried to capture him all the time. The only time it worked is when he wanted it to work. And even then he blew them all down by telling him what his name was. And there was thousands of them. They couldn't capture him. Do you know why they couldn't capture him? You ever read the accounts? They'd surround him. He's busy making bread out of nothing. He's busy ca- casting out demons. He's busy healing people. By the thousands, every single leper in Israel got them all. Sent them all to the Pharisees, drove them crazy. Proof of God's sense of humor. But they couldn't capture him. Why not? Besides being omnipotent, tremendously powerful, he had this revealed uh, response. They had no ability to corral him, regardless of the size of their arresting contingent, because he walked through them. When I say through, by through, I mean through him, them. It's not like a linebacker running through the line. The line's still there. The line, uh, people, he'll bounce off of people. He, Christ walked through them as if they were permeable or unsolid, if you want to think of it that way. As if they were vapor. That's how he went through them. Does he ever call us vapors? Oh, he does. Is he right? Oh, he is. And it caused the Pharisees, Pharisees great distress. You can imagine the committee meetings. I hope you do. We, we're going to surround him. We got, we got 5,000, 6,000 people. We'll go arm to arm. We'll double stack. We'll maybe triple stack. We'll have a couple of animals in there. We'll do what we got to do. Everybody hold hands. Let's get ropes. And he walks right through. How did we not get him? great distress but consider our section on God and time by our i mean my section or me Jesus God is the creator and the installer of time revelation 1 revelation 117 what can he do with time it's inside of him all of it he can stop time if he wills he can stop the universe if he wills he can stop all of it because of gravitational phenomena he can see motion if he wills or he can see motion us you remember me talking about the cards. If I, if I riff, riffled a deck of cards that I had a different picture on them but they were somewhat attached artistically, it would look like the figurines were moving. You've all done that as kids because you're all old like me. But it's essentially a frame by frame movie projector, isn't it? The frames, if I took a single frame out of a movie, what do I have? I have motionlessness. They are individual segments. The segmentations of time, the divisions of time. God can see those individual motions. or I'm sorry, those individual divisions. He can also see all 27 trillion cells inside of you moving. How difficult is it to avoid for God those who are seen as motionless? How much effort does it take to walk around those guys? They can't move to him. He can make them motionless. They don't know they're motionless. But he sees them that way. He can see time, individual dividations, if you will, divisions, segmentations, or he can see time in motion like we can. And then you add omniscience to the equation, knowing our thoughts and all thoughts. He can't be captured unless he wants to be, which tells you why he uh, did what he did. He wanted to be crucified. If he didn't want to be crucified, there is no possibility he would be. Now, where am I? You're all probably certain that I'm hopelessly lost, which might be open disrespect. I leave plausible deniability. (coughs) I know exactly where I am. Well, not exactly. I know that I'm somewhere in Genesis 3, which is pretty good. Joshua 7 and 2 Samuel 11. Let's talk about that a little bit now and get it cleaned up. Eve confesses. She confesses two ways. She gives the fruit to Adam. What did she say by doing that? You ever ask, why does she give the fruit to Adam? Does she have to? Nope. Thank you. She wants to. Why does she want to? Because she recognizes her peril. She also recognizes Adam's contribution to her peril. So what is she doing? She's giving up. She's confessing to him. Did he talk to her about this before she did it? Oh, he had to. He's not deceived by Satan. Did he have a, a sit down with her? Will he interfere with her free will? No, he won't. He won't constrain her. He somehow is able to keep her from going to the tree of life after they're both in sin. I think it was a, a corroborative effort there. But you can see that by giving the fruit to Adam, she is saying something to Adam. As soon as she brings it to him and he sees that it is eaten, part eaten, he knows her condition. And he knows what to do or what he thinks he needs to do. Now, he made a very small error, nonetheless sin. But uh, she confesses there. And she also says, the serpent lied about you to God. She said, the serpent lied to me. What was the lie? The lie was about God. So she says to God, the serpent lied about you. Again, another confession. She knows that what she did was the result of of believing a lie. She's the first one in Scripture to ever call Satan a liar. No angel has has said that to him, in my view. And then David's confession is in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. That is where he confesses for the murder of Uriah. So notice what Achan says in there. You can look it up. Uh, I don't have time to do it. I saw a beautiful garment, he says, I, in his confession. I coveted the beautiful garment and I took the beautiful garment. The woman saw that the fruit was beautiful, pleasant. She took the fruit. David, 2 Samuel eleven two, 2, saw a woman, Bathsheba, who was extremely young in my view, barely 15, who was very beautiful. He saw a woman who was very beautiful and took her. I hope you see the connectivity. The elements are almost identical. And there you have the pattern of James 1 13 through 15. Each one is drawn away by desire when desire has conceived. In other words, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. Each one is drawn away by desire. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. Achan and David are especially connected because of the tent, but also because of their confessions. Why are Achan and David connected? What has that got to do with a father and a son that is ultimately killed by that demon and resurrected by Christ? How does that fit? What other book does stuff like this? It's really the easy part, the tent, but the how of Achan and David is far less of of an issue than the why. Why is the taking of a beautiful garment, a capital offense, a post-confession capital offense? Even though he confessed, he still was executed. David raped a very young woman, a girl, and had her husband murdered. A shallow evaluator would suggest that Achan had a non-commensurate sentence when evaluated alongside of David. But none of the you would concede something like that or can conclude that because to do so would be accusing God of being unjust. And if he's unjust, then what else is he? He's evil. And you've just accused God of being evil. And that's the basis of the line of Satan. So, therefore, Achan in the beautiful garment, how does that get me to Eve, must be weighed with the gathering of wood. Because Achan is executed for stealing the beautiful garment. And the evil man gathering wood on the Sabbath, he also is, is stoned. Capital offense. That's where the blue tassels come from. And the blue tassels take you to the hem of the Christ talit, And the bleeding woman reaches out and touches the talit of Christ and her bleeding stops. So... There you go. Keep working. How many more verses do you think I can pull out in eight more minutes? Obviously, Achan attacked the doctrine of salvation, the truth about Christ, and he stole and hid the garment from Israel. And it's likely that Joshua, with the garment in hand, explained the implications to all of Israel. Achan, however, confessed. And Joshua begged him to confess because he wanted him saved before what? Before he was executed. Who does that remind you of? That's a picture of Christ begging the lost to be saved. Does Christ love that demon? He named him. Okay. Now we can begin the lecture. How much time I got? None? Where's Terry? She left. That's a. Fifth time in the last five lectures that Terry broke for the parking lot. Well, really fast, we last left off at chapters 1-3 and the prophecy in Revelation. <coughs> I think I got five minutes. We left off with this prophecy of Thyatira and the prophecy of Philadelphia. This is where the doctrine of the rapture, the abduction of the church fits. The reason that these two are in the seven church prophecy of Revelation 1-3 and and are set aside, set side by side, they're, they're put in one position together, is the issue of the hour of the trial. So, Philadelphia gets the hour of the trial. Thyatira gets the great tribulation. So the question becomes, how are these two churches related? Why do they each have that? And it's the hour of the trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, Revelation 3.10. So that's what's happening in the hour of the trial. Great tribulation, we have to define that. These are, of course, the words of Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, revealed as the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, Revelation 1.13-16. Christ himself said you, he said, he said, you are going to be affected in a way about the hour of the trial that shall come upon the whole world, in the sense that they are going to be taken out of that hour of trial. He says to Thyatira, some of you will go into the Great Tribulation. These are two church prophecies. And then we're left to identify the meanings of all of that. As usual, the prevailing methodology for successfully... Navigating what that meant is to do what I just did for 45, 50 minutes, which is go find all the scriptures you can find that explain this. Successfully navigating these two structures here, these two uh, (coughs) events. To do that, you have to find and collect all the other incidences where Christ made these references. Where else did he say great tribulation? Obviously, the immediate goal is to properly define great tribulation, an hour of trial. I hope you're already, you've already decided what it is. But once you've accomplished it, and keep in mind there's some disagreement here. People don't always like me. It's shocking, I know. But once you've accomplished it to the subsequent task is to determine whether or not they have equivalence or sameness. Is these, once you've defined them, are they the same? Many say no. I say what? I say many are wrong. Is, in other words, is the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test. Ooh, there's a great word. Test. Didn't we just cover that in Matthew 4? Shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Is that correspondent to the great tribulation? Is there sameness? Another path to investigate is the nature of the test. Why is this a test? To remove them, I'm sorry, why is it a test uh, to take the some out and leave others inside? What is Christ testing for? The ones that remain. And hopefully you're going to recall the Matthew 4, Luke 4, Exodus 17, 1-7 lectures of the last few weeks. Because this is how you get them into Revelation. Because that's where the Israelites tested God. And essentially, it's this way. I'll sum it up. If you accuse God face to face, if you go to the face of God and say to Him, "You did not create living soul. You didn't do it. You didn't create living beings. You said you did in Genesis one twenty twenty two one twenty four twenty five and two seven. You said you did it, but you didn't really do it. You're lying. You're a liar. Remember what Eve said. Satan's the liar." If you accuse God that he did not create living souls, who says all the time that God did not create living souls? All of academia in this country. All of it. All of media in this country, except for some. Very small amount. If you say that he instead created these temporary, temporal illusions of life for the purpose of permanently extinguishing them, and that all men and all women and all children and all animals would be annihilated, then you have... Perpetrated, sorry, a heinous act, a vile, evil, abomination, a destructive act. Essentially, you have repeated the lie of Satan, Ezekiel twenty-eight sixteen. He, God, has none of that in his mind, he says so, Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-five. Do not accuse me, he says, of being someone who murders temporary beings. I don't create temporary beings that can be extinguished. I create living beings. You're a living being. You're not going to be annihilated. You're not going to have secession. You're not going to cease. He has none of that in his mind. So that's the testing of Meribah. And it's forbidden to say this to God. God is among his living souls. That's a basic truth. Define what it means when he's among you. And do not ever suggest he is not. But then, once you got that out of the way, what is God testing for In the hour of trial. Because he's letting people go through the hour of trial to test them. For what? Jesus tells us he's the one who searches the minds and the hearts. Revelation 2.23. What's he searching for? So I'm asking, is the testing in the hour of trial the searching of his minds? Because that's Thyatira and Philadelphia again. To repeat, what is the trial? What is God searching for? He says, take a stroll. Grab some water. I don't have time. What's Christ searching for? The answer, I hope, is obvious to you. Jesus' very name is salvation. It's why he, through Joshua, begs Achan. What's he searching for? Matthew 24:21 through 22, Jesus Christ reveals. He answers the three questions from his disciples, Matthew 24, 3. The first question concerned the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and the Herodian temple. The question was, when is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? The second question is, what signs will be accompanying your return, Christ's return? The third was, when does the age of the Gentiles end, having begun almost 586 B.C.? Those were their three questions. And he answered the third question first. Why didn't he answer the first question first? He didn't want to. What's his reason? He's omniscient God. He has a good one. But he answers the third question first, starting in Matthew 24, 7. He says, you're going to see the end of the Gentiles when there are world wars and great earthquakes. And you've heard me say, there's only been two world wars. I'm old enough to know about both of them. Uh, No one else under the age of 30 knows about either world war because... They go to school now. A little commentary there to get me kicked off Facebook. But I know about the world wars. And I've been in great earthquakes, but I don't think those are the great earthquakes. I think the earthquakes are going to be simultaneous. As you've heard me before, the sign is going to be for everybody. It's not going to be just Alaskans that got the sign. The the whole world gets the sign. Just like the whole world gets its world wars, its world earthquakes. But those are the primary signs that the great tribulation is on the threshold, on the doorstep. Really fast. You'll love this. I know you will. I have Leah 7 and Rachel 7. That is unbelievable. Seven years, he was after Rachel, but he got Leah, so they had to go seven more years to get Rachel. That's seven and seven. Leah seven and Rachel seven. So I want to know when is the Leah seven and when is the Rachel seven? We know that they are subsequent, they immediately follow one another. So, there, isn't that amazing? It's incredible. Because what's it total up to? I'm going to help you. Because I am mathematically inclined. How about that? That's hard to do. I mean, come on. There's a Leah 7 and a Rachel 7. Where do the 14 years fit at the end of the age of the Gentiles? Put the 14 years in and do the math. And maybe you can come up with a day and sell a book for a couple of hours. And then (laughs) take me 14 years to write one page. You don't believe that, do you? The great tribulation, therefore, means great tribulation. It means the great tribulation, and that's a big duh. Does the omniscient, infinite, timeless God of creation, Jesus Christ, does he remember that he said great tribulation in Matthew 24, and then he said great tribulation in Revelation 2? Yes, he remembers. Therefore, the great tribulation of Thyatira is the great tribulation of the end of the age of the Gentiles that he talked to his disciples about. He wouldn't say, well, I didn't really mean great tribulation in Matthew 24. I meant something else. I meant a bad day, maybe gout. The seven-year period of Daniel 9:24 through 26 is the 70th week. You have to know the 70th week to figure all of this stuff out just to get through the boy and the demon. And the mute and the deaf. I have this time of Jacob, Israel's trouble, Jeremiah 37. The nor ever shall be time is what it is. There will never be a time like the Great Tribulation. There never was a time, and there will never be another time like it. It is absolutely unique. The hour of trial that shall come upon the entire world, which then means. Some of Thyatira, those who commit adultery with Jezebel, they're going to be cast into the great tribulation. So what's the first question you should ask? Are you committing adultery with Jezebel? Because if you are and you don't repent, you're going to go through the great tribulation. Repent from what? Is it repent from adultery? What is he searching for? Is he searching for adultery? If he's searching for adultery, where does he find it? Everywhere. Obviously, he's not searching for for adultery, so he's looking for something that's not everywhere. (coughs) Who are these that commit adultery with Jezebel? How exactly do they commit adultery with Jezebel? What does adultery mean with Jezebel? It can't mean adultery in the sense of what you think. Adultery by God, he calls it an abomination. What does he mean? So I have two groups of people here. Those who are cast into the Great Tribulation and those who are kept from the hour of trouble. I'm sorry, the hour of trial. Obviously, the Philadelphians are kept from and the Thyatirans who are cast with Jezebel in the great tribulation are contemporary. Does that make sense? Because I'm going to keep you from the great tribulation. I'm going to put you in the great tribulation. What's obvious about that? Well, do they know each other? Live in the same neighborhood? Probably. Who exactly are each? Who are the Philadelphians? Do they live in Philadelphia? Not very many. There's many, many views on this. And next week I'll add the correct one. Let's get up now while we still can. More brutality from Cliffside. Why do we come on a day when it's sunny, you all say. You know what he's going to do. He's going to take care of all these problems that he's created.